0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Threadcast. This is Ryan Smith, pastor at Common Thread Church. I hope that you are having a good week. Uh, This is the uh, podcast for uh, Common Thread. This is kind of our uh, our way to dive deeper into discussion and to talk through things. We are in our special Advent series um, leading up to Christmas and just kind of challenging each other to be stronger and think more what it means to prepare in the waiting and so we're in our second week of advent uh yesterday was so 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 good um steph and jake started us off with the lighting of the candles sharing uh, some thoughts there and then we got to hear from connie and deb man both powerful powerful messages stuff to think about still wrestling with some of it um if you haven't seen that already make sure and go watch the video on uh on Facebook, um, I'm going to try to maybe put up some clips on on Workplace. We'll see how that works out. Um, but what a great start to get us thinking in this second week at Advent. And, um, yesterday, like we said, we, we lit the second candle, and that second candle symbolizes love. Um, it's also known as the Bethlehem candle, um, and it represents Mary and Joseph and the love that they have. And so... We're going to be continuing our conversation about love, um, but in our unique way through Common Thread where we're diving into the women of Advent, um, and so we hope that this kind of gets you thinking through this. Um, I do want to say this at the beginning, um, I kind of said this last week, but uh, this one, this conversation as well, involves some adult concepts and and um, language, and so uh, if you've got kids listening, just be aware of that as we dive into this. So... Advent opens our eyes to the ways in which God's love is bigger than we could possibly have imagined. How else can we make sense of God's birth as one of us, joining us in our own broken world in order to save it? In the family tree of Jesus, uh, we find in Matthew the name Rahab, which points, I think, to this reality. So in her story, we see God's love pushing past the usual boundaries to embrace each even Israel's enemies. Um, the story opens in Joshua chapter two, with the people encamped. The people of Israel encamped at a place called Shittim. This is in Joshua chapter two, verse one. Now, Shittim is an important place. In Numbers twenty-five, um, an old a book in the Old Testament, um, it tells us that the Israelites um, they while they were at Shittim before. The people of Israel made themselves impure by having illicit sex with Moabite women, in Numbers 25 1. Now, the word for illicit sex here is closely re- related to the Hebrew word for prostitute or prostitution. And the story eventually ended with the Israelite adultery and divine wrath happening. So, the mention of Shatim in Joshua 2 hints that something bad is laying on the horizon, right? Um, some, some readers might get deja vu feeling, uh, especially when the men Joshua sends to investigate Jericho just so happen to end up in the house of a prostitute of all people, right? So, here we go even further. Even the prostitute's name, Rahab, may have invoked provocative images and urges. Um, the word Rahab means wide, broad, or open. So in Hebrew, the verb means to open, which may have carried some sexual connotations, if you can imagine. In a Ugaritic, um, U-G-A-R-I-T-I-C, which is a related language, Rahab can refer to female sexual organs. And in the Babylonian Talmud, which um, a later Jewish body of literature says that the very mention of Rahab's name could cause the speaker sexual arousal. So at the mention of Rahab's name, men gathered around a military campfire might have smirked as if a smutty anecdote were about to be shared. In other words, the spies from Joshua find themselves in a sex-saturated joke. They walk right into it with their eyes wide shut and bedded down there. that We see it says, it bedded down there um, an expression that is often a Hebrew euphemism for sex. So remember, um, as we talk through this, um, sometimes what we forget to do when we read Scripture, we, we, we make it spiritual, we make it clean, we make it um, almost un, unhuman, if we will. But if we're going to read into Scripture the way we're supposed to and, and to truly get what it means, we have to recognize that there's human emotions, real human people involved with this. And so I want us to, to keep that in mind as we keep going, going forward. So two unnamed soldiers find themselves in the home of a prostitute um, doesn't stretch kind of the imagination if you really think about it. It becomes worse when we recognize that they know of Jericho's um, impending conquest. Rahab is one of the enemies the Israelites are about to destroy. So these soldiers then intend to use her and then probably throw her away with the rest of Jericho when they conquer it. Um they hardly This hardly represents godliness or moral purity, right? Um, the symbolism of the Israelites' encamping at Shiptim proves quite appropriate here. Yet in contrast to these two foolish soldiers of whom we should expect so much more, the Gentile prostitute Rahab, like Tamar, proves more righteous than her male Israelite counterpart. Now, you'll you'll hear other conversations about, um, you know, why they went to this house. It probably been easiest to get to, and that's probably true. And and sometimes we do that to kind of whitewash um, the story. But we have to recognize that as soon as the two men leave the safe encampment, they go straight to a prostitute's house. So, in fact, because for exceeding righteousness, which the narrator will soon reveal, many interpreters through the centuries have questioned whether or not Rahab really worked as a prostitute. Again, whitewashing their story, they've spoken of Rahab as a landlord, an innkeeper, or a simple businesswoman in charge of imports or exports or whatever it might be. And they think, you know, surely God would not use a prostitute, Right. Uh, I'm going to say wrong. Um, the crux of the plot lies precisely in setting up the contrast between these men from a holy people and this woman whose profess- profession suggests she is immoral. Rahab has three strikes against her. First, she is Canaanite. Second, she is a female. And third, she is a prostitute. In a patriarchal, pro israelite worldview that prized sexual morality, Rahab was the ultimate the ultimate outsider. Nevertheless, herein we may see something about the character of God. Let's say that no woman, even back then, no woman chooses the profession of prostitution because she enjoys it. No little girl grows up wanting to sell her body. No mommy or daddy wants wants this for their child. Yet without job prospects and the harsh realities of economic stress weighing on the family, women like Rahab sometimes find themselves on the edge of life with slavery or prostitution as their only options. If that is the assumption of the story's author and audience, then Rahab's role as prostitute may actually foster sympathy for her. The ultimate outsider receives God's sympathy, even if she did not receive the sympathy of the two male spies. That's huge because this, is, this story is all about how God is acting. The rest of the story bears that out, and even Rahab finds a place among the chosen people of God. So um, there's kind of a comedic awkwardness of this situation. So two spies who begin their mission by going straight to a prostitute's house continues to escalate when someone tells the king of Jericho about them. So the king sends his messengers to Rahab's house to find the spies, but Rahab has already hidden them on her roof. Now, this roof was probably the, the, the roof of the, the wall, the outer wall of Jericho, just to, just to make note. We should imagine here a scene resembling something out of like an American sitcom, you know, as when a teenage boy is slipped into a teenage girl's bedroom, and when the dad comes knocking on the door, the boy is hidden precariously under the bed or in the closet, right? Um, early readers and hearers of this story may have laughed not only at the thought of sexually aroused soldiers hiding on the roof of Rahab's house, but also of a prostitute so easily deceiving officials from the king. We might imagine her batting her eyes as she tells them, Of course the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. The men left when it was time to close the gate of the dark. I don't know that's why, why she sounds, but I don't know where the men went. Hurry, chase after them. You might want to catch up with them. <laughs> that's awful. Sorry. Unquestionably uh, accepting the story of the woman in front of them, the king's messengers follow her false trail and leave the city in pursuit of the spies. And yet again, an underdog, a female prostitute leaves men searching in vain. Closing the gate behind them, the king's messengers unwittingly unwittingly lock the Israelite spies in the city, making the spies even more dependent on the goodwill and hospitality of Rahab. So, when... Rahab arrives on the roof where she hid them. Joshua's spies receive more than just the goodwill and hospitality of this Canaanite prostitute. They receive a word of verification and a religious confession that rivals the theology of Moses himself. She said to them this in Joshua 2, 9 through 11, it says this, I know that the Lord has given you the land, "'Terror over you has overwhelmed us. "'The entire population of the land "'has melted down in fear because of you. "'We have heard how the Lord dried up the water "'of the Reed Sea or the Red Sea in front of you "'when you left Egypt. "'We also heard what you did to Sihon and Og, "'the two kings of the Amorites "'on the other side of the Jordan. "'You utterly wiped them out. "'We heard this and our hearts turned to water. "'Because of of you, "'people can no longer work up their courage.'" And then she says, this is because the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This confession of a Canaanite prostitute, not the Israelite spies, is the central most significant religious assertion of this entire story. If not the entire book of Joshua. These words come from the mouth of the unexpected source. God chooses to encourage God's people through the mouth of a morally and religiously suspect woman. This tells us not only the degree to which God is committed to Israel, but also that God has good purposes for the Canaanites too. So from the mouth of a Canaanite prostitute, we receive arguably the best theology of the entire book of Joshua. From her, we receive the confirmation that God has given Israel this land. Despite Israel's doubt, that's the reason why they sent the spies in, is because they didn't believe God. So from her, we hear the confirmation that God intends to bring this plan about through God's own power and sovereignty, not merely Israel's military might. From her, a prostitute, a member of a polytheistic culture, we hear the affirmation that the one God of Israel truly exercises authority in heaven, above, and on earth below. That is, over all spheres of existence. Man, what a powerful statement. So a fair amount of irony hangs in the air here when these theological affirmations from top to bottom do not come from the Israelite spies or even from Joshua, but from the mouth of a woman, the mouth of a Canaanite, the mouth of a prostitute. Still, Rahab does not stop with mere theological affirmations designed to boost the spies' confidence. So from her confession, she then makes an ethical request. Now, this is what she says, now I have been loyal to you. So pledge to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal loyally with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. Spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, along with everything they own. Rescue us from death. So the foundation of this appeal has two components. First, she appeals to them by the Lord. Bringing God's name into the mix, she asked the Israelite spies to act in accordance with the, the revealed character of their God, a God who has, throughout history, shown a preferential option for the powerless. Second, Rahab grounds the appeal in her own act of hospitality, counting on an ancient Near Eastern ethic that places high value on hospitality. By that standard, the spies should act like family toward her because she has acted like family toward them. Usually such a request for family like protection can can be made only between actual family or members of the same tribe. But as a woman who has shown herself theologically astute and pragmatically valuable, she believes the boldness of this treat me like family request has warrant. The spies know theological problems are are abound with this request, okay? To make such an agreement with the one To make such an agreement with the one of the Canaanites violates the clear rules Moses gave Israel not to make covenants with the people of the land because it will become a dangerous trap for you. So in short, Rahab's request not only violates the law of God, which serves as the basis of Israel's claim to the land, but it also invites all kinds of moral and religious chaos. Nevertheless, despite these serious concerns, the spies have no firm footing for negotiation. Whether they respect her theology or not, whether they appreciate her protection or not, as long as they find themselves hiding in her house on her roof, they must live by her rules. (laughs) As one scholar writes, on her rooftop beneath a pile of flax in a place where their movement might be detected by Rahab's neighbors, the spies are at Rahab's mercy. So predictably, then they give in to the one option they have and enter into this agreement, this covenant with Rahab. They say, We swear by our own lives to secure to secure yours. If you don't reveal our mission, we will deal loyally and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So protecting Rahab with their promise of protection in place, Rahab reveals the escape route to the Israelite spies. Her house, built literally within the protective walls of the city, has window access to the outside world. Handing them a rope, she instructs them to lower themselves out of the window and into freedom. Only then, once they know how to escape, I want you to hear this, only then, once they know how to escape, do the spies try to turn the tables on her a bit showing their true character, once again contrasted with Rahab's. They make it seem as if she's forced them into this promise they just made. Speaking of, in 2.17, this pledge you made us swear. Because they feel forced into their current situation, because they they now know how to escape, they begin to add new stipulations to the covenant they made with Rahab. In order for her family to be saved, they must must all be present in her home at the time of the attack. Any family members not in Rahab's home will suffer the fate of the rest of the city. The spies also ask Rahab to tie a red cord outside her window on the day of the attack. Now, these seem like um, legit responses, but again, um, they're kind of taking their own lead here. Now, Jewish tradition has often connected this cord with the blood placed on the doorpost on the night of the angel of death passed over Egypt. Uh, specifically paralleling that blood's protective quality. If this connection has merit, the narrator echoes the Passover story in describing the rescue of a Canaanite family. This again speaks boldly about the character of God. So the God of Israel is not concerned only with rescuing Israel. Rather, God's intention lies in rescuing all of creation, all the nations of the earth. God invites all the peoples of the earth from Jerusalem to Jericho to participate in the salvation that so many have thought restricted to one people, Israel. So God's ultimate intention, even for the Canaanites, does not lie in destruction, but in exodus-like liberation, So tying the red cord to her window, Rahab agrees to the stipulations of the spies. The spies wait for three days and return to Joshua with the good news, news delivered in a nearly word-for-word reflection of Rahab's confession. The Lord has definitely given the entire land into our power. In addition, all the land's population has melted down in fear because of us. The words of the Canaanite prostitute became the trumpet call for all of Israel, including Joshua, to enter into the promised land. So the first spy mission to Canaan in Numbers 13 yielded disheartened reports and produced utter lack of faith in Israel. This time, inspired by a Canaanite prostitute, the spies have full confidence in the power of Israel's God. God has quite literally given Israel a second chance to respond in faith. So it takes four more chapters before we learn the fate of Jericho and Rahab. In Joshua 6, the narrator tells us of the fall of the walls of Jericho through shouts and trumpets of Israel's army. And this confirms the reality that Rahab voice, the Israelites' conquest of the land, comes comes about by God's sovereignty, not by their military might. We also learn that the Israelites destroyed every single person in the city. But we also find that Joshua and the Israelites maintained the agreement with Rahab, protecting her and her family. Despite Moses' laws prohibiting the protection of Canaanite life during entrance into the land, Israel has reciprocated Rahab's hospitality towards the spies. And so we read in Joshua 6.25 that Rahab's family still lives among Israel today. So in the inclusion of Rahab and her family, we see that God's ultimate desire is not exclusion, but embrace, not rejection, but reception. Not destruction, but liberation. Rahab's inclusion among the people of God shows that the defining factor for acceptance is neither ethnic identity no nor moral uprightness, but faith that responds to God's activity in the world. So in her expression of faith, she is like Tamar, more righteous than the people who assume religious privilege due to their ethnic heritage. Whereas the people of promise act promiscuously, both literally and spiritually, this Canaanite prostitute becomes an inspiration for Israel's faithfulness. Though Israel has the word of God at their disposal, Rahab's conviction and conduct more accurately accurately reflects that word. Though Israel has the divine commands, Rahab's actions exhibit a more careful response to the heart of God. Though destructive power of war dominates the larger plot of Joshua, the faith of a Canaanite prostitute stands out in the subplot and calls into question the clean and ordered world of moral black and whiteness. The Canaanites that live among the people of God throughout time are not objects to be destroyed, but gifts of the God who is revealed to the world through the most unexpected people. God is revealed to the world through unexpected people. That's an Advent message if there ever was one. Who, after all, could be more unexpected than the son of a carpenter born in Bethlehem? And this is Matthew's message when he includes Rahab and these other women in his genealogy of the Messiah, a God who has, throughout Israel's story, been revealed through Gentiles' desires nothing more than to extend the divine message of salvation to those same Gentiles. So in the Advent season, most of the world prepares for Christmas by gathering together with people just like ourselves. But the story of Rahab reminds us that God has has always worked in the lives of people different from us. The people we tend to overlook or even reject might very well be the means by which God speaks to us. Throughout the Bible and church history, God has opened new doors and new opportunities for his people through the most unlikely people. Advent affords us yet another opportunity to reflect on the inclusion of those unlike us, in the family of God. Advent affords us yet another opportunity to invite these others to sit around our table with all the rights and privileges of family. And so in this second week of Advent where we light a candle for love and we're talking about the idea of hope, may we recognize that God works through the unexpected but also opens his doors to the unexpected. The contrast between Rahab and the Israelite spies, between the place of ill repute in which they hide, and between the prostitute's confession of faith, is as humorous as it is holy. In this situation, we see the smut and sanctity of the world come together. Joshua's spies heard a profound theological witness from an unlikely source. When we open our eyes to see the work of God, we open ourselves to a world where the word becomes flesh in ways we never anticipated. This week, take an opportunity to listen for God's voice in a place you normally would not expect. When your family member tries to talk to you about religion, give him or her your time. When your coworker begins musing positively or negatively on religious things, fan the flame of conversation. When a non-Christian speaks about God, choose to listen rather than dismiss him or interject your own thoughts. Maybe even approach a longtime enemy and apologize for your piece of the broken relationship, making it known to them that you believe in a God who reconciles enemies. Who knows? You may be surprised at what such a confession would do in the life of your enemy. They might even play a role in saving your soul. Hope you have a great day. Grace and peace.